Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. A month is a long time in 2020, a really, really long time. Uh, more than a month ago, or just about a month ago, the, uh, the American writer Ben Ehrenreich, who is living at the moment in Barcelona, wrote a very provocative piece for LitHub entitled The End of Something on Radical Change in a Time of Pandemic. Piece came out, I think, on May 21st, 2020. Four days later, on May 25th, um, George Floyd was murdered by the Minnesota police, and the world is changing again, radically. Uh, ben, if you were writing your piece today, uh, late June, early July 2020, uh, would, uh, would you have made the, the, the Floyd events central in your narrative? Yeah, I think I probably would have had to. Um, and I, I don't know if the basic analysis of the, the problem that I presented in that, in that piece would have changed that much. Um, but the, the sort of question that loomed over that piece was, uh, you know, the pandemic has made it really clear um, some things that are radically wrong um, in our society and in the, you know, the entire direction that the, um, the world is going. Um, and how you know how it was hard enough to con to conceptualize fighting against uh, these things before the pandemic, but when we're encouraged to socially distance, and um, how how on earth are we going to fight against this? Um, and the protests of you know after George Floyd's death um, made it clear that in some ways that's not an issue. Um, that when things uh, get bad enough and people are um, angry enough, they will take to the streets to, to stand up and, and, and fight. Um, so I think that, that put things in a really different perspective. Uh, ben, your, your essay was, was pretty personal, very, uh, I think a very compelling and interesting piece. Uh, you talked about the birth of your, your first child and uh, your experience uh, living, I wouldn't say in exile, but certainly overseas in Barcelona, in Spain. What's the view now? of America from Europe? I know that's a kind of stupid question, but this is a show for stupid questions. God, I, was, I just had uh, met up with a couple of, um, of friends here, and they kind of shake their heads in horror at Trump. Um, you know, the way you would if, if, if a sort of evil cartoon character had taken over the most you know, powerful nation in the world, one whose actions affect everybody on the planet, um, which is, you know, of course, what it feels like to a lot of Americans as well. Um, you know, I, th I think the one thing that's kind of salutary about being outside of the U.S. is the degree to which, uh, you know, in Spain, at least, people don't pay close attention. Um, and and when, I, when I tell people about the things that are happening in the U.S., people are um, surprised um, because unlike a lot of countries in the world, they are not uh, 
the U.S. is not center at the center of their um, understanding of, of global politics, um, despite its enormous power. And uh, I think that would be something that would be uh, good for a lot of Americans to, to learn, too, that, that we're not the center. The radical change that you write about in your piece, do you see that all around you in, 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 in Barcelona? Is, is the coronavirus crisis, I know it, it peaked much earlier in Spain, and, it, and, and in some ways it's quite different from the crisis that's hit the United States, uh, but do you see uh, significant political and economic consequences of, of, of the virus crisis already in Spain? Yeah, I think they're just beginning here. And, and I think the thing that's quite different here is that um, there is a functioning public health system, uh, but still a very good one. Um, and there is a government that responded to the crisis by pouring money um, to people who needed it. Um, not just as Trump has done, signing off a $1,200 check to uh, most Americans and then sending billions and billions to uh, various corporations that, uh, you know, his treasury secretary won't reveal the names of. So, you know, in the U.S., that there was no accountability and no safety net. So we very, very quickly, I think, saw um, the radical inequalities that were revealed by the virus. Um, here, there's been a little more cushioning. Um, but that's not to say that we're also that, that in Spain it, it hasn't done something similar. So, for instance, in the last week there have been um, a number of small outbreaks popping up um, in different parts of the country, and some of those have been in, in care homes for the elderly, which has been true everywhere. But others, for instance, have been among agricultural workers. Um, you know, and agricultural workers in Spain, like in most of Europe, and certainly in the U.S. too, are um, are migrants who are uh, paid, you know, um, barely survival uh, wages and live in in pretty. Um, horrific conditions in which social distancing and, and good hygiene are pretty near to impossible. Um, and so there, there's a number of other ways, too, in, in which it's visible here. But here, too, you know, it, it hit the poorest um, hardest and revealed some of those inequities. In the U.S., I think it's been much, much more drastic than it has here. Um, and one of the things it's revealed in the U.S. is, is how much is missing. Um, it, it reveals the cost of not having a um, a public health system. It reveals the cost of not allowing people sick days, for instance. Um, it allow, reveals the cost, uh, you know, the enormous inequalities in uh, an economy in which um, some people cannot stop working to survive um, and are performing these essential tasks for which they're, you know, barely remunerated at all, um, and others who are performing, you know, tasks that most of us could do without are able to survive quite quite happily and work from home if they work at all. I know you're about to move from Spain uh, to the UK for a while. Oh, not, uh, to, not to move. Um, uh, we're on our way back to the US, seeing my, my partner's family. But you're, you're going to spend a little time in the UK. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you see a, a sort of a, a broad European experience on the pandemic front? Or do you get the sense that UK, as always, is somehow caught between the United States and continental Europe? I mean, the UK feels, yeah, I, th I think you, the way you put it is correct. The, the UK, in terms of the government's reaction, has been very much, very similar to the US government's reaction. In other words, they, they reacted uh, they reacted late and did, did little um, and have been um, responsive to the needs of this mythical beast that we call the economy, right? 
um, and not to the needs of actual human beings uh, who live and die and suffer. Um, and, you know, the difference, I think, is that the UK is not as polarized a society as the U.S. is. Um, and the U.K., despite the, you know, privatization of the NHS and the, you know, massive uh, massive cuts to the NHS, you know, the UK still has a functioning public health system, um, which has, has also dampened the blows. Um, the US, of course, does not. Ben, you're best known as an, uh, an environmental journalist or activist as well. Your, your, your new book, Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap for the End of Time, is, is coming out this month. Um, are we, with the coronavirus, nearer the end of time? What is the impact in, in, in your mind of the crisis, both the health crisis and the political crisis of the Black Lives Matter on the environmental movement and, 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 the, and, and the challenge of, of, of saving the planet? Well, um, the end of time is another question, which maybe we can come back to that. But, um, but in terms of these, uh, these sort of spiraling crises, uh, which um, certainly threaten um, the survival of, uh, you know, human societies as we know them, um, this is this is a big one, um, and as I tried to express in in the piece that ran in LitHub, um, it has a lot of the same causes as the climate crisis. Um, that um, and I, I laid it out as closely as I could in the piece. That um, and you you put it very nicely. You said it's it's no fluke. It's not it's not a matter of chance here, right? Yeah, you know, I think for for most of human existence, um, humans have lived um, with microbes uh, for for better and worse and and have reached at various points, various balances with them. Um, And in the last, particularly the last three quarters of a century, last century, um, those balances have been profoundly disturbed um, as um, for, the, for many of the same reasons that the, the climate crisis is happening um, and, and that the biodiversity crisis is happening. You know, as humans have taken over more and more and more and more wild land, um, we have basically um, released uh, microbes um, that were not previously in contact with humans um, and, uh, you know, um, created some of these uh, zoonotic diseases that we've been seeing in such extraordinary numbers over the last few decades. Um, so I, I think at the root of both of them is an attitude towards nature that is not sustainable. Um, and that attitude is, is not, it's not just an attitude, it's an economic system. I mean, it's capitalism, um, the, uh, to use the C word, uh, as it were, um, that, uh, you know, as long as we regard nature um, simply as a resource that can be infinitely exploited for profit um, or then for the profit of a few at the expense of the many, um, we are going to be on the same suicidal pathway. Um, and, you know, until we uh, really change our relationships with one another and with the natural world, um, I don't see that there's any, any real way out of the, the cul-de-sac we've entered. Is that what you mean by a roadmap for the end of time? Um, yes and no. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, the, the metaphor in the book is, is a bit broader. Um, the book is also about really 
you know, the question I asked as I was setting out on it was, you know, if, if this is the end of time, and it sure feels like it, well, what is time? Um, and I started doing a, a lot of reading and trying to figure out why it is that we experience time the way we do. Um, and what um, I ended up figuring out um, over the course of the research of the book was that we understand time the way we do for, for a lot of the same reasons that we are basically destroying nature and running ourselves into this cul-de-sac, right? Um, that our understanding of time is a very specifically capitalist kind of time, right? We, we understand, um, and this came about especially in the, in the 19th century, where time, which had been this much more flexible thing, um, became something that had to be fungible, that had to be measurable at precise hours, and um, the idea of wasting time came about. But at the same time, as it were, it's really hard to avoid metaphors of time when talking with period. But at the same time, um, our kind of larger understanding of time as a trajectory, um, which is to say for, for most Western societies um, in terms of progress, right? This is the, the big arc, um, which we understand history to be advancing according to. Um, that this too is something quite new, um, something that arose beginning in the late uh, 18th century. Um, and what I came to understand the more I worked on this was that that notion of progress was not just um, this sort of uh, happy notion that things get better over time and that we are destined to improve ourselves because humans are great and humans are smart and we'll keep being inventive. Um, it was actually a way of mapping race onto time. Um, which is to say it's really hard to separate the notion of progress with notions about non-European peoples that were sort of embedded in the notion of progress from the very start, um, that there were some people who were primitive and there were other people who are advanced. Um, so it sort of mapped geographically um, certain places, Africa, the Americas, um, were these primitive and backwards places, and other places, Europe and later North America, um, were were the future. Um, so um, when I'm talking about a roadmap for the end of time, it's also about trying to rethink the way we relate to time generally. Um, and trying to step outside of this way of conceiving time that is that is rooted um, really in a white supremacist orientation. Um, I know that's a lot to pour into a uh, minute-long answer. <laughs> no, that was that was great. And 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 then returning to time to extend your your metaphor back to 2020, this moment in world history that may like. 1848 or 1917 or 1989 go down as this hinge year in history that changed everything. Um, it's interesting that you 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 combine our environmental crisis and the issues of, of race and racism. Does that make the George Floyd event and the Black Lives Matter eruption over the last month, does that make it particularly significant from an environmental point of view? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been it's been clear to a lot of people who have been um, thinking about and active on on the climate crisis for quite some time now that, that you can't separate out race, um, race and economic issues from 
from environmental issues. Um, that in terms of the way um, environmental devastation generally and the climate crisis particularly are experienced, uh, you know, it maps onto race. It maps onto um, it maps onto various forms of privilege, but especially to race. You know, and I can repeat this, but I'm sure uh, you know listeners have heard this many times. That you know the one of the most significant things about the climate crisis is that the um, countries that contributed the least um, to the crisis, in other words, that produced the least um, the least carbon over the last couple of centuries, are the ones that are suffering the most. Um, and those are countries mainly in what we, you know, what is known as the third world, mainly in Africa, the Americas, um, and Asia. And, and yeah, and I, I think it's a really important point, given the fact that the same increasingly seem will be true, I think, of the coronavirus. Plus, within America itself, which is still, I guess, the, the global center of the crisis, it's affecting poor people and people of color much more dramatically than, than, than wealthy people or white people. Um, uh, ben, let's get very concrete then uh, at the end of this conversation. What needs to be done? What's your position on the Green New Deal, on hopefully a Biden presidency? Is anything going to change or are we just going to get more of the same? I, I don't think anything is going to um, particularly change with the Biden presidency and, uh, unless there are um, is incredible pressure from, from grassroots um, and levels of community organizing that uh, that are, I think, absolutely essential. Um, you know, I think uh, Biden has been pressured into taking some, um, finally noticing the climate crisis. Um, but, uh, you know, I think his candidacy is and his entire career um, have been uh, embedded in, in the same you know, political and financial structures that, that got us in this mess to begin with. Um, so it, it's not like uh, you know, Trump's going to be out of office and people can, can just relax, everything's going to be fine. Um, and you know, I think the Green New Deal, I, I'm, it, it excites me. Um, I think the, the one thing I think that's missing from it and it's missing from the general discussion um, of the climate crisis in the U.S. for the most part is an internationalist perspective um, that I, I don't think there's any way out of this um, without dealing with the kind of global inequities I was talking about earlier. Um, I, you know, and, and you can be idealistic about that or you can be completely selfish about it, but, uh, but none of us are going to survive unless we take on a, a more planetary um, sort of consciousness about this. Wow, you're very miserable, Ben. Anything to be cheerful about? Oh God, yeah. I mean, you know, um, and I don't think this is miserable. Um, <laughs> I think it's realistic. No, I'm um, teasing. I'm teasing <laughs> you, but uh, you are uh, your I mean, vision. I can tell you. I can tell you, like, hey, it's going to let's vote for Biden, and 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 then we can relax. Um, but you know, come on. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's one of the, you know, I, I think one of the things that the book is about um, and that I hope comes comes through in it um, is that one of the things as the West developed this, this time consciousness over the last couple of centuries, um, one of the things that was banished from that um, was a sense that the, like, the planet, all life on it, even things that we don't normally, you know, 
recognize as being um, sentient or um, everything is is alive and beautiful and constantly changing. Um, and I, I think some some sense of that deep, deep interconnection um, and the, the sort of animation of all things um, is is really crucial. Um, I mean, it, it keeps me alive and it keeps me sane, um, and it keeps you know me you know able to um, advance again against each day. Um, but I think I think this is something all of us will need is a, is a sense of the you know absolute beauty and irreplaceability of of one another um, and and of everything around us. And I think that's what you do a great job with in in, in your new book, Desert Notebooks, a roadmap for the end of time. You 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 write about the density, the complexity of both the physical and the emotional world in a in a in a very compelling way. So congratulations on the book. Everyone, of course, should read that. And Ben, given that everyone's still stuck at home, any other suggestions for reading during the pandemic? Yeah, I can think of a couple of books. Um, One is um, a book which is, I think, one of the, for me, one of the most helpful ways of understanding the crisis that that we've been in in the U.S., you know, which is in many ways a crisis of white supremacy. Um, and that's a terrific book by a, a poet named Anthony McCann. It's his, his first book, a nonfiction book called Shadowlands, um, which is about the Oregon standoff at Muller last year. Um, it's more than one year ago now. Um, and it, it's an extraordinary book, which goes beyond just the the headlines of that situation um, to, I think, a really deep understanding of um, what is at stake for um, in terms of whiteness in the West and, and how, how things have gotten so um, gotten so twisted um, in the US. So I think that was like, I would put that on absolutely essential um, list. Another is a, a novel um, by another poet uh, who also writes novels named Seshu Foster, people in Los Angeles particularly know Seshu. Um, and a book called Atomic Aztecs, which he wrote, it's now 15 years old. Um, it's an absolutely um, wonderful, hilarious, wise um, novel that will uh, take you through some, some rough weeks. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.